Welcome to The Signal. This is the platform for storytelling from journalism students at the University of King's College in Halifax. I'm Alex Guy. And I'm Michael Chubbs. This year, COVID-19 is having a big effect on students. In our program, we're working remotely from all over the country. So we decided to take a look at some of the impacts the pandemic is having on how we live and what we do for both good and bad. It's becoming cliche to say we live in strange times, but sometimes a crisis can make you try something new or find new ways of coping and adapting. Right. For example, senior care has never been easy, but the coronavirus pandemic has posed unique challenges for personal support workers and those in charge of taking care of our most vulnerable population. Kanal Chaudhry has more. It was a big uh, change, a very, very big change. Kalsang Dolker is a senior program coordinator at Etobicoke Senior Services. She says the pandemic has been particularly hard on people with dementia. For clients with dementia, for people with dementia, the routine is so important. So their routine was just broken. Dolker and ESS pivoted quickly to providing support on the phone and online. Here, the accessibility challenges were magnified. In person, they have us to facilitate, to encourage, to stimulate. So we did telephone with them. So sometimes they recognize our voices, sometimes they don't. Of course, challenges were not just limited to seniors. Personal support workers had their own difficulties adjusting to the pandemic. Sherry Laxenten has been a personal support worker and caregiver for more than 20 years. It makes it difficult. Some clients are scared of the mask, so I have to go get my COVID testing. It's five hours standing, lining up to get through that. Plus, then they require you to stay away from people while you're waiting for your result. So you're stuck at home. At the beginning of the month, Premier Doug Ford responded to some of these challenges. He announced a pay increase of $3 an hour for PSWs. I've always said, you know, the, the personal support workers, they're, they're overworked, they're underpaid. But I'm proud to announce today they're getting a raise. Of course, the challenges of providing care during the pandemic are more than just financial. Doker says the staff-client ratio is key. Like if one person is looking after eight, nine, ten clients, that person is deemed to be burnout for sure. I think the organizations should be supporting more and letting the staff breathe so that they can provide energy to other people in need. With the province hiring 2,000 more PSWs in the coming months, this support might just become a reality. For The Signal, I'm Kunal Chowdhury. Where you live in Atlantic Canada can make a big difference to whether or not you survive an overdose. Access to harm reduction services like needle exchanges for people who inject drugs is not the same across the region. As Prepo Gal tells us, the Substance User Network of the Atlantic region isn't letting the pandemic derail its attempts to change that. It's a rainy afternoon in Halifax. Patrick Mulbert is in the meeting room at Direction 180, an opioid treatment program in the North End. He's leading a workshop that's part of a program for current and former substance users. Shame, right? And in a lot of ways, I mean, I think we all can understand this room, like what it's like to... To be, to, you know, to be stigmatized, to have... Mobert himself is a former substance user and one of the three people heading a new project called the Substance User Network of the Atlantic Region, 
or SUNAR for short. The federally funded project aims to connect substance users around the maritime so that more communities have access to things like the workshop Mobert is leading today. I like to think that we're, we're putting sort of like a face and a, a real a realness to a sort of lofty project, I think, um, and kind of bringing it home to the actual uh, local and regional needs. This past summer, taking advantage of the Atlantic bubble, Mobert was part of a group that traveled the Maritimes to visit places that provide services to substance users. Caroline Plume is the project coordinator. We didn't go in saying we have all the answers. We, I think we went in wanting to hear from them what are the okay. issues in their community. But this wasn't always clear when the group showed up in some of the communities. People would come in like, oh, what are these people want this time? Like, you know, what, what now, you know? Cindy McIsaac is the director of Direction 180. Sunar was her idea. We're just there to hopefully strengthen that connection with the substance using population. Back at the workshop, the group is deep in discussion. The group is still in its early stage. Sunar is already active on social media, while future plans include a new website and regular regional meetings. For The Signal, I'm Preet Bogle. Other vulnerable or marginalized groups are also looking for ways to support each other during the pandemic. For some in the LGBTQ community, being able to attend drag performances while staying safe has been key. Daryl Roberts has more. It's Saturday morning at the Carlton in downtown Halifax. People are taking their seats and ordering food and drinks. But this isn't a regular brunch. Thank you folks for coming up this morning to lovely another edition of Weights and Waffles at the Carlton. This is a drag brunch. It's hosted by the House of Rivers, a drag trio. The House of Rivers is made up of Rachel, Trinity Fox, and Brooke Rivers. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, drag shows usually had packed crowds. This show is different. Rachel says that they have adapted their performances to fit COVID-19 restrictions. We just figured out how to separate people, keep tables enough distance apart, and we actually started wearing mingle masks. So it's a face shield, but it's still clear because obviously as drag queens, we lip sync. Live performances were put on hold in the early days of the pandemic, so the drag community came together to host online events instead. Christy Davidson is another Halifax drag queen. Before the pandemic, she hosted a weekly RuPaul's Drag Race viewing party. She spoke to me about taking the party online. So I took that idea and wanted to interact with people, wanted them to still have that community. Online shows helped ease social isolation as many were stuck at home. Brio Hanley is a researcher and master's student at Trent University. She says that these kinds of online gatherings were especially important for young LGBTQ plus people. Social support is always important for everybody anywhere, but specifically for queer people, having social support and affirmation that's specific to their identity is going to make a big difference, and that is really hard when we can't physically get together. In Atlantic Canada, drag performers are once again doing live shows. We take all our precautions very seriously. We just want people to enjoy life right now because it's been a struggle for a really long time for everyone. This is giving people the opportunity to get out of their homes and still feel safe. So far, so good. Halifax audiences can enjoy drag for the foreseeable future. For The Signal, I'm Daryl Roberts in Halifax. You're listening to The Signal, audio journalism from the University of King's College. We're heard on CKDU, Dalhousie Campus Radio at 88.1 FM. Our shows are also on our SoundCloud. Search The Signal, a Halifax podcast, 
And you can check us out on Twitter too at SignalHFX. Just as the leaves have changed in beautiful Cape Breton, so has one of its most celebrated festivals thanks to COVID-19. The world-famous Celtic Colors International Festival was held online this year. Simon Smith went to find out how that's impacted the festival's newest performer. Morgan Tony picked up the fiddle a year and a half ago, and he already sounds like this. About a month before the Celtic Colors Festival, the 21-year-old got some exciting news. I was at home, and I just got off work. It was around 10.15 at night, and I got an email, actually a Facebook message from one of the organizers here at Celtic Colors. And she was wondering if I'd be willing to play at the Celtic Colors Festival this year. And I was like, I don't think I'm reading that right. I got to read that a few more times. And then I read it again, and I was like, wow, okay, I'm down for that. The festival's creative director, Don Beaton, knows that this year's online format isn't ideal. It's something we do is to encourage um, up-and-comers and get them the platform to, to perform and to have people discover them. Um, so in that instance, it's in a way a bit of an unfortunate introduction to Celtic Colors because they don't get the full realm of it. But Tony and his bandmate Mary Beth Cardi did their best to bridge the virtual gap with their performance. The two have been playing music together for about six months. It's really great to hear him sing as well. He's a really great singer and I really love that he's um, singing in Mi'kmaq because that's the language of this land and uh, that's what I love to hear. Tony has become known for his fiddle renditions of Mi'kmaq songs. Because I didn't know where I was going when I picked up the system and I just picked it up and started playing trad tunes and then after I took Mi'kmaq songs that I usually sung with a drum and bringing it to the fiddle, that, that's when I knew, it's like, okay, this is what I got to do. He says an album is on the way. He plans to dedicate it to the Mi'kmaq Nation. For The Signal, I'm Simon Smith. In Calgary, a well-known museum and event centre has stayed closed despite the lifting of the COVID-19 lockdown months ago. Fort Calgary is still facing pressures from the pandemic. As Nicole Fusekis tells us, it's using the opportunity to transform and refocus its programming. In the corner of Fort Calgary's museum, there's a fake streetcar. In front of it, there's an old box television, nearly the size of a barrel. It's playing original black-and-white footage of Calgary in the 1920s. Beyond the streetcar, there's an assortment of old objects, worn tin cans, old-fashioned hats, and antiquated machinery. What's not here? Visitors. Like all organizations like ours, in March we closed our doors to the public and immediately had to cancel all of our public programs, which is tough. Um, Naomi Grattan is the president and CEO of Fort Calgary. The fort typically hosts thousands of school children and other visitors each year. But because of the pandemic, there's been little public demand. So while most of the city has reopened, this building has stayed closed. Naomi says there's a silver lining to the closure. Really, COVID has given us the time and space to renew every single operating aspect of the building while focusing also on the plans for the future. These plans include a focus on telling a deeper, more complex story about the land and history Fort Calgary occupies. This site is, of course, the place where the Northwest Mounted Police arrived in 1875, but previous to that, and pre-contact, it's been a place of gathering uh, for the Blackfoot Nation uh, for thousands and thousands of years. Fort Calgary has actually been working to update this story for a long time. There has always been a hope of 
replacing this um, interpretive center that we're standing in today uh, with a new contemporary museum space. Um, and so that Naomi says they're still planning to rebuild the museum space. She also says Fort Calgary will likely reopen in February of next year. While the fort will still have its current exhibits, it'll also have new winter programming on weekends. I think, you know, campfires outside, hot cocoa, storytelling, that kind of thing. Until then, the lights are off in the museum. For The Signal, I'm Nicole Fusakis. We've heard lots about how the pandemic has affected restaurant and bar owners. Now, as patios close for the season, concerns continue. At one downtown Halifax bar, business has been cut in half. Nathan Horn has more. It's midday in downtown Halifax. Normally, on a Thursday at lunch, the streets would be bustling and restaurants crowded, but not anymore. Two Doors Down owner Craig Flynn has been feeling the pressure of COVID since the pandemic began back in March. It's been a very, very challenging time. We have never really gotten past, say, 40 or 45 percent of regular revenue. The Downtown Halifax Business Commission estimates that only 20 to 25 percent of the downtown workforce has returned to work. Bartender Rick Nyma has been feeling the pressure. There are a lot more, obviously, cleaning procedures and things like that that have to take place day to day, uh, which adds, yeah, a certain level of, uh, of stress, perhaps. Flynn says the government's efforts to support local businesses hasn't been enough, and with the winter months approaching, Flynn's concerns are mounting. They should be ramping up with more support, at least until the end of March, not taking it away. Additionally, Flynn feels the provincial government has been guilty of scaring the public into staying home despite low case numbers and mandatory masks. And I think that message needs to get out there but a bit more loudly and clearly from the people that are, um, have basically told people in the first three months that, you know, don't go out, lock down, and, and implanted a lot of fear in people. For now, Flynn can only hope for the best as the winter approaches, patios go indoors, and a second wave looms. Nathan Horn, The Signal, Halifax. It's hard to find opportunities to enjoy live traditional music during a pandemic, but some folk musicians are trying to think outside the box. Antonia Whalen has more from Newfoundland. Thanks to COVID-19, traditional musical gatherings look a lot different these days. Dancing is prohibited, people must stay spaced apart. For Kendra Jock, that's meant a sense of cultural loss. Jock is a traditional Inuk fiddler, performer, and cultural advocate. Normally, she'd be freelancing and doing gigs at small town gatherings. In a pandemic, that's not possible. Right now, there aren't a lot of shows happening, and it'll stay that way for the next little while, so we've got to be creative in our work. She says it means many people are having to take their careers online to find an audience, whether they want to or not. Moving from the traditional to the electronic world is a form of enhancing traditions. It's like we're integrating what we've done digitally. And she's thinking big. Jock's plan is to introduce the world to coastal Labrador music, a genre that is so specific and remote that it has hardly gained any recognition in any form. She wants to incorporate some melodies native to her homeland in her electronic music, but most importantly, she wants to get traditional Labrador musicians in the recording studio. I'll get the names out there of those on the coast, get Inuit people on the map a bit more. Music NL Executive Director Rhonda Tolkleen feels that although the pandemic has been tough, many musicians are feeling confident in their careers. Recreate and imagine how they connect with their audience to be able to do this. And, and there was... Um, a lot of success through COVID where um, online shows were happening and people were, were really valuing that connection. Many folk musicians have found new ways to connect to their audience and their culture. For The Signal, I'm Antonia Whalen.
Finally, do you remember how everyone was making bread during the lockdown? Right, and all the grocery stores ran out of flour. Once, every community had its own grain mill. Today, Sweet Mountain Farm is among only a few operations growing and milling flour in Nova Scotia. Rosemary Murphy has more. The farm is at the end of a long dirt road. Its red-roofed barn is surrounded by rolling fields in Antigonish County's Ohio Valley. Um, there was a mill about a uh, flour mill, sawmill, about two kilometers up the road this way. The farm has been in Gabe Chisholm's family for six generations. His wife Riley is a sociologist who studied agriculture. They're looking back to a simpler time for inspiration. Historically, there was a lot of grain grown around here. That being said, I'm not able to access any of that information because it sort of like died out in my father's time. The COVID baking phenomenon and nationwide flour shortages earlier this year made the time right for their new enterprise. Everyone started thinking about food security. So they planted a big crop of wheat and ordered a stone mill. By the end of August, they harvested and milled the first crop of stone ground spray-free wheat. They're currently milling between 50 and 400 pounds a week. Um, well, it's, it's kind of amazing, to be honest yeah. with you. We are totally overwhelmed. One of their biggest customers is Chef David Kite. He owns a local food-focused restaurant. He says their wheat makes a big difference in his bread. I noticed right away it was a delicious, deep flavor. It's earthy and hearty and warm and feels healthy and good to eat. Their flour isn't cheap, between $7.50 to $9 per kilo, but people keep buying it. And I think it's because they understand a one kilogram bag of this flour will fill your body and bones in yeah. a way that um, this highly processed, you know, it's Dead. it's it's just calories. There's there's no nutrients in it. They obviously care deeply about their product and what they're doing and their land, and their community and their customers. After the success of their flour, Gabe and Riley are thinking of other products. Maybe salt or maple sugar next. For The Signal, I'm Rose Murphy in Antigonish. Ooh, homemade bread. Not just a COVID thing in Nova Scotia, eh? It sure isn't. That's our show from Group 2 of the Boot Camp Audio class at the University of King's College. I'm Alex Guy. And I'm Michael Chucks. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Starting on Friday the 13th, the audio workshop at King's will start its series of radio shows showcasing student journalism. You'll be able to catch those on CKDU 88.1 FM on Friday mornings at 11. Or you can listen to work from the audio workshop next month on SoundCloud. Search The Signal, a Halifax podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, too, at SignalHFX. Thanks for listening. Take care.